try to imagine what the ideal sort of embedded finance accretion of skills and capabilities would be for B2B SaaS businesses not to have to worry about all the complexity of financial services. And we work backwards from that. We, you know, we specifically identified skill sets that we need. It's like building a football team. You know, you, you can't just have a, a great goalie. You know, you've got to have the scorer, you've got to have the midfield players, and you're curating a lot of that. And, and, and yet, you also have to make them work as a team. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome uh, back to the SaaS Revolution show. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, CEO and founder of SaaStock. Uh, delighted to be joined today by another Alex, but uh, Alex Mifsud, who is uh, also actually sharing a, a Maltese surname, uh, but he's the co-founder and CEO of Weaver. So welcome, uh, Alex, uh, to the podcast. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for joining. We are in the the week before or in the, in the run up to Christmas. So um, neither of us wearing a Christmas jumper. Um, but uh, can I ask, are you, are you feeling festive? Um, you, you know, how, how is it in uh, Weaver HQ and, and for you personally at the moment? Well, we're, we're squeezing as much as we can out of 2023. So uh, no, the festivities have definitely not started. Um, we're, we're, we're definitely full on here. All right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, similar at SAS.HQ. Um, like I said, it's a bit of a skeleton crew. Half the company uh, has already, you know, broken for their holidays, and the other half is sort of grinding hard uh, to get those, uh, you know, last bits of revenue and uh, last deals in uh, for the year. Um, but I will be wrapping up this week uh, and, and having a two-week break. Uh, so looking forward to that. Not doing anything exciting uh, apart from. Uh, relaxing, hanging with the family, maybe eating a little bit too much, but I'm going to try and stay on top of the fitness uh, this year. Often, I, I mean, it, it's okay, you know, to put on a few pounds during Christmas, but if I, I keep the exercise going, um, you, you know, hopefully I don't come into January with with too much to lose in uh, in terms of weights and uh, uh, in in the new year. It's it's about recharging those batteries, isn't it? Really getting ready, just ready to go for the next year. Exactly. And I, I think, I mean, I'm sure everybody, I, I'm not alone in, in that. And as a founder and as a CEO, uh, you, you know, we really do need to uh, take care of ourselves and recharge our batteries uh, from time to time. Often uh, don't do it uh, enough uh, in terms of, I, I, you know, I'll take a break and I'll work for six months then. And by the end of the six months, I'm kind of like pretty much burnt out and then take another break and recharge and, you know, kind of go again. Uh, but I, I need to learn to take those uh, more regular kind of shorter breaks to to kind of help with that. I do a lot of other stuff to, to help with, um, you, you know, physical, mental kind of um, uh, performance, you, you know, in, in terms of, you know, trying to optimize sleep, going to the gym, you know, food, that sort of stuff. But uh, in terms of actual breaks and, and time away, uh, I, could, I could definitely do better. How about yourself? No, it, look, it's, it's the same. First of all, you don't get to control the amount of stuff, right? That you have to get right for things to keep going in the right direction. Um, at the same time, you, you have to survive through it. So I, I think it's a mix of being 
having the right habits to stay healthy because that will drag you down. If, if your health gives way, that drags you down. But it's also a mind game, actually, most of the time. And if you, you know, I think everyone's a little bit different, but if, if, if you develop sort of coping strategies for how you deal with stress, don't, not letting it build up, being able to sort of celebrate the moments, see things in perspective, you know, give yourself that sort of little mind break to be thinking about other things, then I think you'll, you know, it's a marathon, you know, for most, most businesses, it's, it's a marathon and, and surviving all the way through it is very much keeping body and mind together. So uh, Alex, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you know, who, who is Alex uh, Misud? Yeah, I mean, I, I, my sort of career had, a, had two parts to it. One was very much um, a, an academic career where I was, uh, I, you know, I did, I did engineering to start with, electrical engineering, mostly around developing computer architectures. And then I moved sort of very slightly sideways into computer science, uh, you know, did my PhD, did my research and really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, um, you know, I think the idea of, of spending your time on one, one subject, really getting deep into it, really understanding in that perhaps narrow area, everything there is to know about it, you know, and, and having a, a group of people around the world who are in a way in on that particular area and having those that, that, that interaction, that's amazingly um, satisfying. But it's also a little bit artificial. So you, you, you also have this nagging feeling, you, you know, there's a world outside that you're not quite interacting in, you're not, you know, you're not quite making the most of. And for me, the trigger happened in, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to really think about what to do outside the world of academia and, and to start organizing stuff in the early days of the internet. For me, that was setting up the Malta Internet Foundation, really setting up the .mt top level domain, building that internet infrastructure early on and really getting to see the, the, the huge impact that, that this, this, you know, a then new thing called the internet was having on everyone's lives. And that then got me started thinking about how do I take this, uh, this excitement of, uh, of something which is very broadly relevant around the world rather than perhaps the more narrow area of my, of, of my, of my research. How do I make more of that? And that really got me started into looking at, um, at being involved in and, and ultimately building uh, businesses of my own. So that's been my early journey. Yeah, uh, thanks for sharing that. And I, I didn't know. In terms, I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? In terms of, uh, I guess, kind of setting up the the the, the .mt, you know, sort of Malta uh, internet uh, uh, infrastructure as uh, as such. Um, and I know that you're a serial entrepreneur. Um, and um, just a couple of questions there. So. Um, from moving from PhD to becoming an entrepreneur, was that like, uh, was that an e easy step, a, a logical step? I mean, it's never easy being an entrepreneur, but uh, how was that kind of segue? Yeah, um, look, the, the first experience was what I think a, a massive failure. Um, this was the end of the dot-com boom, um, you know, managed to get involved in a business that raised a lot of money, um, you know, the 30s of billions of dollars. Um, I fell out with the CEO, it didn't send well for me. And, you know, <laughs> basically I realized this wasn't quite the world of academia that I was, uh, I was used to, it's a completely different dynamic at play. 
And then, you know, I, I basically, you know, you start from ground zero, right, when that happens. I did a, about a year in consulting. I actually moved over to Cambridge in the UK. I did a year of consulting, learned a lot from that year, and then just got the bite again to, 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 to have another go. This time with me founding the business, that was my first business. And I, a lot of things came together because I, I took a, a bunch of the research I was doing uh, before, you know, when I, when I was, uh, when I, when I was in, in, in academia and I really wanted to try and find real world problems to solve. And I, I won't bore you with the details, but I stumbled on this concept, which is a virtual prepaid card. So this is a prepaid card without plastic, just a 16 digit number, you know, the expire date and the, 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 the CVV. So no plastic, no bank account behind it, no credit line behind it. That's why it's a prepaid card. And I realized this this simple thing could work anywhere on across the internet at any merchant that was accepting, you know, Visa and Mastercard products, and actually could be could could be turned into a real sort of utility for for online payments. And that was my first business, a business called Entropay, where I you know I learned a lot about how to make how to make business work that business ultimately wasn't super successful it it it, it was profitable but it gave rise to to my second business which uh, a business called Exaris where if you like you know you, you do it the second time round and you distill all the things that didn't work you're very much more commercially aware aware of the value of the of the not of just of the product you're building but of the company that you're building as well and and, and the second time round it, it worked much better. It scaled much more. Um, and, and that business uh, was sold um, just over two and a half years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and now it's processing, um, from my understanding, sort of, you know, tens of billions of dollars a year uh, in, in commercial payments on this, uh, on this concept of virtual card. Most businesses, most startups fail, unfortunately, and, and there are a number of reasons because of this. Often second-time uh, entrepreneurs and second-time founders, uh, I, I guess, is, is the same thing. They've learned a lot from the missteps and, and, and sometimes, obviously some of the, the, the successes as well. And, and that does stand you in good stead for, for that second time round. And um, uh, as you said, you had an exit then uh, the second time round. Uh, what, can you paint a, a bit of a picture? Like what, what did that outcome sort of like look like or how big the company was? What was it, it, it doing? Um, and then uh, I, I guess kind of after that, why did you decide to then start again, um, you know, with, uh, with Weaver? Yes, it was a bit of a relay race, actually. What, uh, what happened was in, in the second business, a business called Exaris, we were applying this concept of virtual card across a whole range of industries, you know, insurance for claims payouts, for, for, paying, um, for paying suppliers who are, who are making good on claims, um, for payroll, really delivering efficient digital first payroll in, in several countries around the world. Uh, in the travel industry for all, uh, travel agents to be able to pay airlines and hotels. So there's a range of sort of applications there. And one of the sort of things we realized is when we, you're building these applications for very demanding customers, sometimes multinationals, you know, well-known brands, they are often very specific and demanding in terms of how the experience has to be. And we realized we're kind of reinventing the wheel every time we did one of these deals. So I, I wanted to try and find a way of building like an operating system that would take 80% of the lift to be just out of the box because you know it was tooled up to, to help you do it um, in a way efficiently every time you encounter a situation, having more of a tool-based approach. 
So we, we did that and we, we were very lucky to get a grant from the um, EU Horizon program, which is, you know, an 80 billion uh, euro odd fund that funds deep tech research. So building this operating system for what ultimately came to be called embedded finance was a really exciting project that we did at, at, at Xaris. While we were doing it, so this project took two and a half years to, to build this operating system for, from the ground up. While we were doing it, the Xaris business really found product market fit in the travel sector. And, you know, and, and you, you see that, right? You see this, the, the product, when product market fit, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this uh, perhaps a bit more, you, the qualitatively, the sense of the business really changes. And at that point, by the time we finished this operating system, we really were not interested in doing all that variety of stuff. We're doing just one thing and doing it at scale. So I came into this sort of quandary. Do I continue to sort of grow this business, which intellectually had become less exciting for me, although it was getting, you know, huge amount of traction. At the same time, you know, this this thing we've created, which we are not going to use in the context of this business, what do we do with it? And I, and I think we, the way that got resolved is that the um, well, the Xaris business was then put up for sale, and uh, and and I spun out the uh, the operating system business, uh, which is what became what became Weaver, and and you know the. Um, now, overlapping all of this was the pandemic, which, which complicated matters a little bit, not least in the travel sector. So uh, the, the business went, went from processing, you know, billions of dollars to, to tens of millions of dollars for a while. Um, very challenging exit. But, you know, we ultimately, you know, we did it. And the, and the result was, uh, was that ultimately, the, you know, the, the, the plan came to happen that I successfully um, spun out and bootstrapped the Weaver business at the same time. You know, made a decent chunk of change from uh, from the exit of the business, which which gave me the financial freedom not to you know not not that, to be I guess to be more ambitious for the uh, for, for for the Weaver business. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, uh, great to hear that. I guess kind of use case and able to be able to I guess uh, incubate as such uh, your one business and then kind of like spin it out um, and. Uh, also, so d- during a challenging time of uh, uh, of COVID as well, and so, 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 where is um, uh, Weaver now? Like, can you share some data uh, on the company? And you mentioned it obviously initially. I guess it was kind of bootstrapped and you, you know incubated through uh, Exaris. Um, you know, is, is it still bootstrapped or or, or is it venture backed uh, now as well? Yeah, it, it is very much venture backed. So we're hundred ten people. We have just um, gone past the hundred signed uh, what we call embedders. These are the these are software businesses typically integrating financial services into their software. Uh, realistically, around half are on production, and um, so uh, you know you, you will know, and and many listeners will know that the venture um, world has gone through a really difficult time in the last uh, couple of years. And uh, you know there there are some who have not survived that. Some of them are are, are you know formerly our customers. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to say, um, and it's all in any case it's always very much a sort of eighty twenty rule, right? You you onboard you know ten programs and two will do incredibly well, you know three or four will do okay, and and some will just languish, never really come into their own. That's just that that is just normal. Uh, I think in in most of these types of businesses, which are seeking you know to build new products in new markets, it's just uh, it's just how things are. Um, I think what's worked what's worked um, perhaps 
you know, really celebrating is, A, we've been very lucky with timing, you know, embedded finance is only coming into its own now. Um, the investor community, I, I guess, were excited about the potential of this market a couple of years ago. We, we were very much, the, uh, you know, the right thing at the right time. And we've raised a fair amount of capital. We raised about $50 million worth of capital which we, we still have the majority of in the business. So we've been quite frugal as how we deploy that capital. I think that's really important, especially in this, this current environment. Uh, and we're slowly building, I think, the operating system for embedded finance. Um, initially, we were focusing mostly on, on startups, that uh, digital startups who, who wanted to use embedded finance as a way to increase the value to their customers. What's happened in the last um, 18 months is that we've shifted the focus on much more established businesses, some of them actually multinationals. If you look at our deal size and, and you know, in the way we, we do contracts, you've got a minimum commitment in a contract and then, and then all, it's all upside beyond that commitment. But even if you look at that minimum commitment, the deal sizes are, have in the last 12 months have gone up by a factor of 5x. So it's a big, it's a massive shift from relatively early stage businesses into into larger businesses that means the stress on everyone in the company has obviously gone up uh, enormously everyone's had to step up you know our technology has always been scalable thanks to the pedigree we've had so at least that bit is not is is one thing we can actually rely on very much but everything else the you know the the, the customer touch points the, the way you sort of you know roll out programs with really established brands all of that um, is, has had to step up and, it, and it's still in the process of, of, of stepping up. So a yeah, very sort of exciting time in, in the business, seeing, seeing both the challenging environment we're operating in, but also the, the sort of, um, uh, if, if you like, the, the, the sort of flowering of demand um, in, in, uh, where, we didn't, where, where we expected it less to be maybe a couple of years ago. And, and, and so, uh, and, and thanks for sharing that. So, so you mentioned uh, raising fifty million in quite, I think, a short period of time. It's over a couple of years, um, if that's correct, right? Um, uh, and what would that be? Uh, is that seed, Series A, and B? Uh, we went through a quick succession. So we were raising money during the pandemic. In fact, you know, I really started day one in the in the business where very much as soon as lockdown happened, which was which is very much at the time where we were expected to have, um, you know, close the sale on, on my previous business. Uh, now, best laid plans that got delayed by about a year. Um, but we we bootstrapped uh, Weaver with, um, with having to fundraise cold in an environment where you couldn't meet anyone face to face. Um, we, we did a, we did a, a small raise before we launched um, our service in November 2020. Um, this November, we celebrated our third year of operations. Um, and in that three years, we, we, I think we raised uh, two, three, three times uh, after that. Um, so, so, you know, the last raise was actually in, in early 2022 um, when we raised uh, 40 million Series A. Okay, uh, very good, uh, and a, a pretty sizable Series A there. And so, um, let, let, let's go into a little bit some of the, the the lessons in in building Weaver to date and building the business and uh, getting it to uh, uh, to where it is. And so, you, you mentioned previously uh, with Exaris the point uh, around um, it finding PMF within the travel industry. 
Um, what about the in- instances for Weaver in, in in finding PMF and uh, maybe some of your learning sort of like pre-PMF through to finding PMF and uh, your thoughts around that? Yes, well, embedded finance is a really wide space, right? So, so the concept of embedding financial services to software applies for you know consumer software, for business software, for a whole for even different sectors, healthcare, transportation. It's a very, very sort of broad space, which 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 makes it exciting, but also it means that you can actually get lost. You can burn all your capital just scanning and trying trying so many different things out that you never really kind of realize that the, you, you never get the resonance uh, of product market fit. So for me, the biggest anxiety was about how do you balance the kind of, you know, the hype, the making of hypothesis, if you like, that's what you're doing when you're really scanning for product market fit early on. And at the same time, as focusing and doubling down on areas where you start sort of, you know, you, you, you get you get a sense that there's something here going on, which is which is ripe, which is where the timing is right, where, where, where you know, where the value story is right. And and I think we are very much in the place where we see that resonance now. And it's only fairly recent in the last, um, I would say, in the last six to nine months where we've, we've suddenly felt, you know, that there's this qualitative change in the buying behavior. And I, and I think that's what you get with product market fit. In the entropy business, we were very active in, in the online gaming industry, you know, and, and we realized that at one point in time, that wasn't the only industry we, we targeted. We tra- targeted five or six different industries, but at some point you got a resonance. You really understood why people were buying and you, really, and, you, know, you had this rational case that if you were on, in their shoes, you would be making exactly the same decisions. You would be buying from us, and I, and the same thing with Exaris. You know, when we when we found the travel sector, we realized that travel agents typically had margins of sub five percent. When they used our products, they could increase their margins by an extra twenty five percent. And when you kind of realize that, you would say you'd have to be crazy not to buy, right? Uh, and then when you overlay on that, who else could they buy from? And th- there were definite segments where we were absolutely the best option. Knowing that is when you get product market fit, knowing who would buy, why they would buy, and why they would buy from you. And I think with, uh, at Weaver, we're really starting to, to get this resonance. Um, the, where we've landed is that the world of the world of B2B SaaS is our is actually our sweet spot. Um, in B2B SaaS, adding financial services means that for the software business, they can 2x, 3x, even 5x their revenue per customer. Right? So they can not only make more money for themselves, but they can also add a ton of value for the customers. So think about think about an ERP system, an accounting system that also actually pays your suppliers for you and tracks that they have been paid and maybe gets the early payment discounts and maybe even offers you working capital so that you can actually meet your outgoings. Now it's no longer paying, you know, the customer is no longer paying for just software that tells them when they need to pay the suppliers, but it's doing a lot of additional things. It, it's bringing the benefits of automation. It's, it's probably financially optimizing their cash flow as well. Suddenly, the value story that the B2B SaaS company can tap into becomes three, four times as big than just selling the, the, the software. And, and so we've, we've realized this. And what we've done is we've 
identified use cases where there is a lot of value to be created, right? So a, a big example for us has been in the employee benefits space. There's a lot of platforms for talent management that rely on high engagement with employees. Now, creating a retail-like experience for employees to be able to, to buy uh, basically their rewards, their benefits, whether that's the traditional ones like healthcare, you know, or, 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 or life insurance and that sort of thing, or whether it's things like wellness. Um, creating a retail experience increases the take up of employee benefits, increasing engagements, increasing the optionality for where you can actually use your employee benefits. And having realized that, we're, we're now finding a lot of employee benefits companies that are moving away from the legacy sort of catalog type um, offerings into one where they can actually provide a retail experience for the employee. And I could, I could give a similar story to the few other use cases where we are now seeing that, that sort of resonance that gives us all these sort of indications of product market fit. It becomes easier to sell. Um, it becomes easier to, if you like, differentiate yourself from, from the alternatives. And, and ultimately, you also have the proof of value, right? Which is always what uh, customers are always anxious. Are they doing the right thing? And seeing other, other companies which are similar to them, facing similar problems, actually use the solution, getting the results, gives them that confidence to buy and to invest in, in, and to deploy the, 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 the solutions. So, so that's kind of um, how we've been, we've been sort of inching our way towards product market fit at Weaver. Makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, so, uh, a, a lot of SaaS companies, and uh, in your case, uh, find themselves in these broad markets. And um, I, I guess like your use case, it, it's really just trying to identify uh, that ICP, that specific ICP and, and, and customer that really gets this, uh, I, I don't know, this the maximum value. And then how, how can you kind of double down uh, on these people and, and serve them as well as you can? Um, um, so, uh, yeah, great, um, uh, a great example there. Um, what about, I mean, like getting uh, to 110 people in, in three years, right? Um, I'm, I'm sure um, it has pros and cons. It, you know, it's, got, uh, and it's pretty... Uh, rapid scaling, but like for venture back companies, perhaps um, you're obviously more, much more normal than for for a bootstrap business. Um, how do you think about like building the right team? You, you know, for the the right stage of of, of business. Uh, you know, for where you're at and where you're going. Yeah, look, um, uh, I am not one of those people who thinks having more people is some sort of path to glory. Right? I mean, the the reality is, if you can if you can deliver success with a smaller team. Um, that, that's that's always the best because a smaller team will be more engaged, will know each other better, will will have less overhead, um, you know, communication overheads. Uh, but in in an in a world like financial services, where there's there's a lot of stuff to get right, you know, risk management, compliance, um, really resilient technology, security, you actually need. You need a lot of different kind of fun, um, functional experts to be able to come together and together sort of create the right, um, you know, the, the, the right product and the right stack to, to have a viable product that, that can scale. So I think in financial services, it's a little bit different. Uh, in a way, you're spending a lot of time just to bring things to, to the right level and to the right standard that you have a right to play in financial services. You know, we expect uh, you know our banks to keep our money safe. You know, for 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 them to protect us from being hacked and and our accounts stolen. 
those expectations are all the right ones. And so a financial service company has to put a lot of things right before they can actually offer the quality of service that someone would trust them with their, you know, where someone would trust them with their money. And, and you know, and at Weaver, this is what we've done, right? In, in, the, in the end, Weaver is, is, a, is a mix of financial services professionals who really understand the, the risks, the economics of financial services, the, the kind of, you know, the processes and the responsibilities of financial services and also are able to bring engineering solutions, you know, technology that can make those processes work better, can make, can make it work, not just better, but can make it work at all in an embedded context, which is insanely hard, right? When you've got um, effectively a man in the middle on top between the financial service provider and the end customer, you really, have, uh, you really can't leave things to chance. And you want to do it in a way which is also creating a seamless customer experience. Like, that's where you get to 110 people, right? <laughs> Before you know it. Um, so the, the, I think the, the sort of challenge we, um, we, we took on at Weaver is to, is to try to imagine what the ideal sort of embedded finance accretion of skills and capabilities would be for B2B SaaS businesses not to have to worry about all the complexity of financial services. And we work backwards from that. We, you know, we specifically identified skill sets that we need. It's, all, it's, like, it's like building a football team. You, know, you, you can't just have a, a great goalie. You know, you've got to have the score. You've got to have the midfield players. And you're curating a lot of that. And, and, and yet, you also have to make them work as a team. And so, you know, it's, uh, you know, is there, is there a magic formula that makes it all work? There isn't. You, you hire, you know, you hire people for the right attitude, skill set, culture, and sometimes it doesn't work and you have to make the changes you need to make, you know. And, and finally, I think you have to be guided by what good looks like, I think. And you have to have the courage to not to lower your standards because it's so insanely hard to hire right and hire consistently. No, 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 absolutely. And I think like you said, okay, there's, there is no magic formula and it, you know, th things can work out and, uh, and also the, 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 the other way. Uh, but it, it, how do you uh, like view uh, like uh, performance frameworks of getting the team that you have like in place to hit their goals or you can drive them towards and as, as you're doing now coming up to end of quarter, like over Christmas, but obviously like all year all year round, you, you know, what are your thoughts on like uh, performance frameworks and uh, getting the team to uh, drive the company forward to, to hit its goals? Yeah, it's, it's about right-sizing the performance frameworks, right? So, and, and I think, I think that performance frameworks, they have to serve a higher purpose. So if you know what are the different, if you can sort of identify, you know, three, maybe five really important things the company needs to get right. For example, you know, doing risk management at scale to really be successful and being able to create a seamless customer experience without putting a, too much of a heavy lift onto the SaaS uh, customer and better that you're working with. And then you work backwards, you would say, okay, what's keeping us from doing that? Maybe our technology needs, uh, you know, needs an improvement in this area. Maybe we need to hire for this skill set. Maybe we need to look at the processes that on, on how we sort of, you know, support these, these embedders. And you kind of break it down. Then you can put in a performance framework. Then, you know, to me, having KPIs without being able to answer the question, when you look at a specific KPI figure and say, what does good look like? 
if you can't answer that question, you might as well not have measurement because it just it is just flattery, right? Every time you are saying what my target is to you know cut the uh, the time to go live by thirty percent, then you are setting in stone you're setting a sort of line in the sand of what good looks like, and then then it's worth measuring how long it takes to go live because you're always saying, is it getting close to where I need to be? Or if it's not, why? What, what have I misunderstood here about the fundamental thing that is going on? Maybe it's not possible, right? And, 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 and that's, I think, where performance frameworks come in. They, they, they're both telling us how we're moving forward, but they're also teaching us a lot about the levers in the business and what's, what is hard and what's easy and what can be easily sort of influenced, what's, you know, what's less directly influenceable. Um, we spend a lot of time actually at Weaver curating what goes into those performance frameworks. And we're doing the same thing. I mean, we're, you know, as we wash up 2023, we're thinking about uh, 2024 and, and some stuff is brought over from 23 into 2024, but there's also new challenges that we are recognizing that we know we now need to translate into a performance framework. So it, it's, um, I, I think it's really, uh, it's really essential for leaders to spend the time to, to structure a performance framework. It doesn't have to be very kind of complicated, but to do it in a way that's relevant to what good looks like for that business at that particular stage of the business, uh, it's, it's absolutely essential. We're gonna move um, in, into the quick fire or quickish fire round now, uh, Alex. So uh, uh, I'm gonna ask uh, or kick off with uh, what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? Well. Failure, actually, every, <laughs> with every failure, you know, you confront that things are not what they should be. Um, and they jolt you into um, soul searching, making the change you need to make. Uh, what is the best advice you've ever received? Well, I think one, 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 one big change that came from this advice is that it's not about who's right in an argument, but ultimately it's about doing what is right or, or ultimately, you know, getting the right answer. And, and that removes the ego from it and, and actually changes the way you, you get into an argument by trying to seek what's right rather than trying to prove you are right. It completely changes that dynamic. And, 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 I, and the, someone gave me that advice um, 25 years ago and, uh, and I can still remember it because it really made a change in how I approach conflict, how I approach um, arguments. And, and I think it, it's created a better me. Uh, you mentioned uh, failure has moved the needle the most for you in your career. Uh, is there a specific failure or the biggest failure that you've made with a lesson learned that you could share? Um, th there are plenty. I'll, let me pick one. Um, one, has, one was in negotiating a sale for my first business, actually, uh, Entropy, where we were very close, but uh, played hardball and uh, decided not to compromise and the sale fell through and we never got to sell that business. So, so I think, you know, that, that was a big massive fail, uh, I think, on, uh, on, on standing hard on things that actually should be, should really be where you should really try to find a compromise. And uh, just out of curiosity, were you negotiating that yourselves or did you have like a broker working with you on that one? Um, no, we had we actually had an investment banker who was really recommending we try to find a space for agreement. Um, I think we had a range of shareholders from the very bullish to the more sort of, you know, accommodating. Um, 
I, I don't diminish my responsibility for holding out on that one, though. <laughs> it was a fail. Yeah. Um, what is the hardest thing about being a CEO? By, by, de by definition, when, you're, when you're, you're a CEO, ultimately, you've really got to make things happen now, but you also can't lose sight of the future. So that, to me, that, that sort of, do you look far and do you create things now which will make your business better in 12 months time? Or do you get in the weeds right now and solve the problem that the business needs to solve? Getting that balance right, I think, is, is, is really, really hard. And, and I find myself constantly having to look at both, look at the balance um, am I ignoring the, all the fires that are burning right now because I've got this great shiny thing which I'm working towards that's going to be really impactful for the business in 12 months, maybe you know, opening um, offices in a new market, uh, launching a new product, or do I spend all of my time putting out fires, but then we don't really know where we're going and we're not really investing in, in, in changing the, the, you know, the trajectory of the business. That is really hard to do because both are... are very engaging uh, things to spend your time on, right? And they they require so many different skills. So yeah, I find that quite hard to balance. What's your favorite book on business uh, and why? Well, right right now, um, I am rereading because I read, read, read it the first time through very quickly, um, Scaling People, which, um, which uh, is... Uh, written by uh, Claire Hughes Johnson, who um, really did this at uh, Google and then more recently at Stripe. And the book, in a way, quite, it, it's quite you know, practical. It's, it's got forms of how you organize things, whether it's hiring or, or setting performance sort of frameworks. But uh, it's just so relevant to, to Eva right now. We're very much in execution mode right now. We're feeling very good around the space that we've identified for ourselves and we're getting really good sort of good traction. So now it's all around getting that machine to just, you know, scale and, and actually perform better as we, as, you know, as we make our way towards Series B. Awesome. Uh, haven't read that book, one for the list. We've had Claire uh, speak at Sastock uh, in the past. And so, uh, yeah, curious to uh, read that one myself. And so, Alex, we come to the end of the, uh, the podcast. Um, if people want to, to reach out to you, where can they find you and where can they learn more about Weaver? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to connect with me. Um, search for Alex Mifsud, Weaver.io. Uh, I'll pop out right there. Just reach out. Um, and yeah, look at our website, get in touch. Uh, we, we have events in, in, you know, in-person events in various places, around, mostly around Europe um, and, uh, and, and webinars and all the rest of it. Co connect with us. We'd, we, you know, we'd, we'd love to engage with the SaaS community, especially. Awesome, awesome. Well, Alex, uh, thank you so much for being a great guest on the show. Good luck with uh, uh, finishing up the rest of uh, uh, 2023. And uh, here's to an exciting 2024. So thanks so much, Alex Misford, uh, CEO of Weaver. Thanks for having me, Alex. All the best for you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SAS founders at sasdoc.com.